it's sort of me, but it's also sort of, it's whenever possible, it's the same four guys, other guys, which are Joe Russo, Jonathan Goldberger, Eric Deutsch, John D. Simon, and me. That's the band, essentially, whenever possible. Now, Joe's got a baby. He doesn't like, he doesn't want, he, and he's busy, you know, all those guys. Jonathan Goldberger, at one point, we counted how many bands he was in, and this is not hyperbole. He was in 26 bands when we counted, and I think he's in more now than he was then. (laughs) He was in, at that point, he was literally in 26 bands that were all happening at that point. And how is that humanly possible? Because a lot of them were bands that just played four times a year. Even if four times a year, I'm trying to work out the math in my head, and that just seems like more days than 100 100 days. Well, (laughs) yeah, that's like 100 days a year. You know, one of them was like a band that would literally just do a record every year or not. But um, yeah, he was in 26 bands. That's kind of like New York vibe that's like the new york vibe versus the la vibe sure when your last lp came out 10 years ago and these guys are in 26 bands it's hard for you to ask people to make this group a priority right so it's like those guys they make it an emotional priority (laughs) and and they make it a priority in that they're all grossly underpaid you know uh given what those guys all demand as musicians at this point it's they're basically pro bono <laughs> a lot of the time, especially when you compare it to like what, you know, any of those guys command, especially Joe Russo. It's like if someone was going to be like, I want to hire you to make a record, it would cost more money than, you know, like my record costs probably. Yeah. But the band is essentially those guys. You know, that being said, I write all the material, although there was a song on the first album that was co-written with Jonathan Goldberger. And those, I mean, those guys, they have a lot of input creatively, like when we're recording and there's a lot of arrangement stuff that happens that like the weird bars of three in faded away on the first album. That was all Joe you can smell Joe all over that. Uh, other things like the, there's a, this bizarre, but amazing now when I hear a long pedal of E over court, this, these chord changes at the end of cool and the gang is right on the second album. And that was John Goldberger. And also, I don't tell them what to do that much. I kind of just cut them loose because they're all really good. So I'll demo stuff out. And I do sometimes get demo love, which is something I struggle with. And uh, something that I think I've gotten much better about over time is even if I initially am like, oh, but I missed that one thing that I played badly on guitar that used to be here. I've come to realize that it's always the better call to just commit to whatever it is john does or whatever eric does or whatever just commit to it because i'll always end up liking it more you can't get super precious when you surround yourself with very talented people yeah it's it's self-defeating if you do it's like what's the point at that point it's like there's plenty of cats that are like good who aren't geniuses and i could i could get cats that are good to come in and play if i wanted to write everything and who could play everything i write and be great at it but it's like you know everything that those Eric Deutsch and those guys bring like Jaunty, just like the way he like swings and walks the bass on like Stranger Things on the new album. It's like I couldn't have written any of that. I just knew that it was in three and I just, you know, played it on acoustic guitar and was like and I didn't that was one I didn't demo at all. I just was like, here's the song. You yeah. know, here's how it goes. It's a little like uh, composure from the first album, but the chord changes are different. But it's another song in G and in three and it swings. That's why I you probably didn't catch it, but the end of the vibe solo on Stranger Things, like I quote the vibe line from Composure because they're like the same tempo, the same 
time and they're all and they're both in G. The chords aren't the same and the melody's not the same, but I was like, I'm gonna go ahead and call myself out on that before anyone else does. So I just put it into my vibe solo on the album. Is that something you have to get better at as far as again sort of killing your darlings? As far as you have this very personal song to you and you know that it once you put it out into the world it's gonna end up being really different than what you would imagine it as. Yeah. I think that's also something that I've gotten better with over time. And and that that comes with partly what's great about this band is that those guys and I've been playing together for 20 years, even yeah. though it wasn't all in this band. But all of us, like the first real band that we toured in was this band Fat Mama, and we all played together. And so we go way back like car seats. And so there's like a trust there that I have with them that I don't, that I wouldn't have with other guys, even if they rip. These guys, I know them so well that I I have a level of trust that I wouldn't have with other people. And therefore, it's like, you know, even if they slightly redirect a song, I'm like cool with being like, oh, oh, all right. And, I, and, I, and I've always sort of appreciated that later on. Better take a stab while you're still sharp on the, the EP. It's like that was more of like sort of a bizarre like punk song initially and then like when those guys got a hold of it it kind of turned into a honky-tonk song and now when i hear it i'm like that's obviously what it should have been i don't know why i was trying to make it into a punk song i was listening to a lot of jawbreaker at that point i've come to realize that you know if a song gets redirected and it and it turns into not exactly what you're envisioning that's that's not always a bad thing yeah and that doesn't mean it's any less of a song than it would have been if it was believe me i'm a control freak and some of the stuff from soup to nuts i i totally take control of and those guys will you know they'll 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 keep checking it they'll keep bumping it you know and i'll keep bumping back and even that you know creates awesome things like i'm gonna die one time on the new album that one i was pretty control freaky about and then john when he gave me the guitar solo it was just like noise and i was like and also i had planned for that part of the song to get really loud and Joe and John both kind of push back against me on that because I, I love spiritualized and it's like it's like every song just kind of does yeah, that. Yeah, all yeah, of a yeah. Just like a wall of sound. Yeah. Basically. And, and, and now I'm glad I didn't because, yeah, that is like so. And I love Godspeed, You Black Emperor yeah. and, all, and those kind of bands. But it was it's cool. Now when I hear it, I love that. Instead, it actually steps down a little, especially to get quieter and have a noise guitar solo at the same time, like that's two things that don't often happen together. It's like noise guitar solos. Yeah, sure. But things usually get louder when that happens. So for a song to actually step down a little and have a noise guitar solo, that's introspective. Like now when I hear it, I'm like, that was totally the move. I'm so glad those guys overpowered me on that. What has to come together in your life for you to decide to put out really your first, not just your first LP in 10 years, but like your your first album in I guess like seven years? I mean, the stars really have to align, right? I had started, I mean, even after the, shortly after the EP in 2011, I was still writing. After any of these records, you never expect there to be a seven-year gap between them. No, it's... I am a total perfectionist and like there are things I literally did over 200 takes of multiple things on the new album and the intro 
you better take a stab while you're still sharp. I remember I did 166 takes of that, and it's only like it's like eight bars long. Do you feel good about it now? Oh, I, every okay. time I hear that, I literally go, "That is perfect. That yeah. could not be any better." I love the sound. I love the guitar sound because it's partly. I'll do so many takes because it'll be like vibraphone, the nature of acoustic instruments. It'll be like I'll do 30 takes of something, and then I'll be like, mm, "I feel like the mics were." too close i want to get more room sound you know and then i'll back the mics off and i'll do a bunch more takes and be like oh but i want to hear it with the motor now and then i'll and then i'll and then i'll do it you know the motor that makes it go whoa, 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 you know like the vibraphone motor so then I'll, I'll do takes with the motor and be like yeah okay but i think the motor will sound better close mic and it's so that's how it happens but it's total perfectionism so i don't it's not like there wasn't that long of a gap between the ep and when i started making the last record you know i i think that record was you know in production for like four years um i i we went in and did basics in 2014 at some point and then it was like i spent a year doing my thing and being a perfectionist and doing a zillion takes and i was i was teaching like full-time at that point too and one of the things that happened was i realized that i wasn't i just couldn't teach full-time anymore and really create art there's people who do it it's totally doable but me it wasn't doable it gets harder and harder as you get older obviously yeah. you just don't have the time or the energy totally and the older you get the older you're the person you're with gets the less tolerant they get about yeah. like blasting guitars and things like that at when they get home from work and they're working full-time my girlfriend dina is super tolerant but everyone has their limit. You don't get pushback from the standpoint of like, why are you still following this crazy dream? Um, no, she, she's actually for someone who works in nine to five and she has concerns about the amount of money that cause New York city is so expensive. And it's right now, if we were to buy a place that wasn't a co-op in New York, cause a co-op is problematic. Cause you know, like I play music, we could run into problems there. So just dealing with the board. Yeah, dealing with the board. Uh, to buy a place that's not a co-op in New York would would we'd be like that would put us like underwater practically. Or, or we she doesn't want to feel like she's chained to her job and at that point she'd be chained chained to her job because um she she also day trades. She started day trading and wants to get out of she grades diamonds for a living. She's a gemologist and eventually she wants to be her own boss. She yeah. does not like she does not like having a boss. I don't blame her. So it's like she went and worked in India, and that was that was crucial because that gave me three months of the apartment to myself where I was just grinding every day. That's all I did. Suddenly you had real deadline. Yeah, exactly. I was like, okay, if I don't get this done while she's gone, I'm not going to get it done. Yeah. So I got everything I had to do done at that point you must be a different person to some degree than you were when you actually made the record and wrote the songs yeah you know it's funny when you make an album really quickly it's very much a snapshot of yeah. you and of your influences and what your aesthetic is when you make an album over the course of four years four years it's like you're discovering new bands yeah. you know like the song enough is enough i i wrote that two years into making the album and that got put in later and it's like you know when i hear that it's like the influence it's like oh yeah i was listening to the weekend all the time and like i hear it and i and i i rediscovered or sort of rekindled my love of like 90s hip-hop 
and 90s R&B, and, like, I hear it on that track, really obviously. And that wouldn't happen if I'd made the album quickly, you know? I know people who just bang it out and make an album in, like, a month. I couldn't do it, but there's people who do. And for me, it's... I kind of like that over the course of making the album, I'll discover, like, 20 new bands, and that will inform inform the record to some degree. And there's something there's something cool about that. But, yeah, also, you're just a different person overall when i started the album it was still i was was really like i just had kind of so like the first album right it's super manic i would i you know literally the name of the first song i'm always manic when i'm around you and i was in new york i had like gotten off heroin i was like had finished grad school while getting off heroin which was interesting and and that was in England, and like I got to New York, my friends from Fat Mama were here. Yeah. I hadn't seen them in years. Last time I'd seen them, I wasn't doing so hot. You were turning a page in your life in like yeah, every and aspect. Absolutely, and I, so I got here, and it was like, just, just okay. So when these major life events happen, especially when you're younger, it's like, like when I got kidnapped in Colombia, it's like I got back from that, and I was like. I'm never going to be sad again. <laughs> like, I'm never going to take anything for granted. I'm never going to take anything for granted. I, I landed in Miami. Yeah. And I got down on the ground and I just like started crying. And I was like, this is a new beginning. And it was. I When I first got to college, I was there on like a full ride. But I was kind of burned out from going to an intense performing arts high school. I was like drinking a lot and just like enjoying not enjoying being at an. I went to University of Colorado Boulder, coming from this like tiny private performing arts high school where everyone knows everyone by the third week of school. Being at this huge university and like partying and it was awesome and the weather is beautiful. I was like raging and I, but I like, I I wasn't practicing enough and I was not getting great grades and just and then like Columbia happened and I came back and I was like. I started shedding four hours a day. It was like honeymoon, you know? It was like, oh my God, I'm so happy to be alive. Life is so wonderful. And then when I, when I got acquitted for that really serious crime, six months after Columbia, like, I'm serious. I quit smoking. I'm shedding all the time. I'm walking home from the music building after the Super Bowl and the police are, are arresting some kid. There's kind of, there's like hazy tear gas in the air because the students and the police in Colorado were constantly like lobbing things at each other. And there was a lot of tension between the police and the students there. And, and I was just avoiding the situation. And I heard the police like say to these other kids, they're like, beat it or you guys are going to jail too. And I just hear smash. And I, and I knew immediately like, Oh, someone threw a brick at the police. And I was like, man, I'm going to see someone just get beat down. And so I turned around and I'm like, Oh, I'm not really seeing anything. This, all right. And I'm bored. And I turn back around. I'm walk, and I'm walking. And then I turn around again. And there's like two police officers coming towards me. And I'm like, Oh, that's weird. And I turn around again. And then I hear them getting closer and I stop. And I was like, Oh yeah, they probably want to ask me, you know, did I see which way he went? And so I stop and I still have my hands in my pocket and they just tackle me. Boom. Into the ground, knee on the back of my head. They drag me back. And thus begins a nine month ordeal of going to trial for felony assault with a deadly weapon on a police officer with intent and a five-year mandatory minimum up to 25 years in prison or something. It was one of those things where I kept being like, this nightmare is about to end. I get bailed out of jail finally. I'm like, okay, this will end now. 
when they dragged me back to the car, I figured, oh, they're going to drag me back, and the guy's going to be like, oh, that's not the guy. Nope, guy. Police officer's like, yeah, that's him. I watched him throw it. And I'm like, what? And they jammed me in the car, and the guy said a bunch of inappropriate stuff to me on the way to the jail. And then I think it's going to end at jail. It doesn't. I get bailed out. I get a lawyer. I go to the pretrial hearing. And the lawyer warned me. He's like, it's not going to end there because the, the bar is really low. Um, all they have to prove is that, you know, there's basically likely a crime was committed. And they did. And so and I'm, I keep thinking there's no way this is going to keep keep going. But it did. And I, nine months later, I went to trial for, you know, a week and got acquitted. But it was terrifying. Fat Mama were already on the East Coast. I drove all the way from Boulder, Colorado to the Iron Horse in Northampton, Massachusetts. And I met up with them. And it was like honeymoon. You know, it was like, this is it. I'm touring with this band. I love these guys. They're so talented. They're the coolest guys I've ever met. I'm not in prison. But it always wears off, you know? Like, it, it slowly wore off. The band broke up. I'm back in college. All the guys that I knew from when I was a freshman have basically graduated at that point. Most of the guys in Fat Mama. Eric Deutsch was there, but everyone else was back on the East Coast. And I am was like, that's when I started getting really depressed. And that's when I, I started. And I started messing around with drugs at the end of Fat Mama. And weirdly, I I had panic attacks when I got stoned when I was younger. And so I was, like, terrified of drug use. And then I started, like, dealing with my anxiety. And in a weird way, that was ended up being the worst thing I, that ever happened to me. Because when, I, when I, I, I got over my anxiety, and I remember one time I, someone was, was getting high. And they're like, do you want someone? I was like, I need to conquer this, you know. And I got stoned. And I, and I started to panic. And I, and I breathed my way out of it. And then I was like, I finally feel in control of myself. So then I started being dabbling, be like, oh yeah, I'll eat those pills. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do a line of that. And heroin always just seems like this crazy step though, right? It, it, or does one just casually dabble in heroin? No, heroin has a stigma. Everybody knows. Like, yeah. Who does heroin? You, you know, it rarely ends well for people. You know, crack too. It's like the yeah. same kind of thing. But the way you get to those is like, I got hooked on pain pills first. You know, yeah. I was, you know, I hate to say I was ahead of the curve, but the, you know, this the, whole, uh, the opioid, <laughs> epidemic? The opioid yeah. epidemic of all the curves I was ahead of. That was one I was absolutely ahead of. Um, cause yeah, I, it started with my friend had his wisdom teeth out and he had some Vicodin left over yeah. and he was like, Hey, we were like miniature golfing. He's like, you want to, you want to eat a couple? And I was like, sure. Cause I had my newfound, you know, uh, my newfound empowered self. And I was like, yes, I'm in control of myself. And so I ate a couple of Vicodin and I was like, oh my God, I am in love with this. And I like went home and like listened to Bill Evans and like, you know, like you did all that shit you do. Sorry. You did all the stuff you do. You can swear. It's fine. You, you do all that shit you do when you, when you, get caught up in the romantics that are the romantic yeah, you listen to jazz music yeah like and I, I i mean i love bill evans anyway but i was like you're like i'm fucking charlie parker now yeah yeah oh mid you know like oh i get it now i'm listening to bill evans like oh mid-tempo swing i get why it's so great you know and like and i fell asleep and i woke up the next day and felt like a million bucks and was like wow this stuff's great like the come down is nothing and so that's how it started and it turned into just me like constantly even before i had any physical addiction i was so addicted was constantly if i saw a guy with a broken arm or a broken leg 
I guarantee you I'd strike up a conversation with him and somehow casually joke about if he has any pain pills. And and it and it just spiraled out of there. And then you get to a point where, you know, I had I had friends that were moving a lot of pills and like and it's like, yeah, you'd get OxyContin sometimes, but like often you wouldn't. And OxyContin got so unbelievably expensive that at some point you're like, snorting this or snorting heroin, heroin's cheaper. Like you know, and then you'll be with someone who fools you into thinking they're in control of it, you know? And they'll be like, yeah, I use it once in a while. And they'll do something and be like, all right, so it starts out, you know, you're snorting it. And then it's... Like, at least I'm not shooting it up. I'm just yeah, snorting yeah. it. Oh, totally. You're like, you're like, oh, this is... And honestly, snorting heroin, snorting OxyContin. Um, you know, fentanyl was around back then, too. It was just China White. You know, that's what they called China White. Everyone knew it was, like, not exactly heroin. It came from China. And it was, and it was tended to be really strong. There isn't a moment where you feel like you've crossed a line. No, because, I, yeah, I would feel you'd have to be at a point in your life where you were, you really didn't give a, a shit if you were just gonna jump into heroin. But like I said, it starts with you do opiates and you know that they're all in the same family, and you mess, you know, you eat some Percocet and you get high as hell. And the next day you wake up and you're like, oh, I actually feel pretty good. And it really does take a while to get a physical addiction. I remember there was a period where I started, I was smoking black tar heroin every day, probably two months straight. And then I went home to visit my parents. And like, I was emotional a little, but not in in like a depressed way. I remember like leaving town and getting choked up at like what a crazy summer I'd had. And getting sort of overwhelmed and crying, but not feeling bad. And I felt fine after doing it every day for two months. And, you know, Burroughs talks about that in his book, Junkie, and I'd read that too. It really does take a while to get physically addicted to it. In a sense, you were a different person, but you weren't a worse person. Yeah, I went through a period where I was... So, yeah, I made the leap to heroin. In the beginning, it was very much like snorting it and smoking black tar. I wasn't really shooting it yet but where i was like i you know most addicts go through this where they're like they go through the period where it works for them i graduated from undergrad you were still a functioning i was functional i used it pretty much every day uh it it was a drain financially it was and resource wise just time wise he's going to score it but i was still i was like this is great i love it you know like yeah, okay, I'm a junkie. So, you know, so was Lou Reed, although... You mentioned Burroughs, you mentioned Lou Reed. Were you romanticizing it in that way? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, when you're younger, you feel invincible. It's like this mix of immortality and delusions of grandeur that comes with heroin early on for a lot of people. Off Mike, you mentioned Joe Sturmer earlier, and I remember that there was uh, a Joe Sturmer quote where he's talking about Topper Hedden because they kicked him out of the band for a heroin addiction. Mm-hmm. And he said something along the lines of certain drugs are good for certain creative things. Like Charlie Parker could take heroin and could do a great saxophone solo. But if you're the drummer of a punk band, heroin's probably not the ideal drug for you. That's that's funny. And yeah, I would I would second that. When you romanticize it, was there just sort of beyond the fact that, oh, you know, my heroes did it. Is there an idea that this could potentially feed into creativity or this could I be never, a positive? Well, uh, no. I never thought, cause I've never, I've never thought that drugs make anyone creative. I would say, but what heroin did for me, and I've, 
I got to give credit where credit's due. The one thing it did for me was, you know, I started out really as like a drum set player. And then I went to performing arts high school and I got really into classical percussion and also jazz vibraphone. But like my college auditions were all orchestral excerpts. The whole time I was that guy, deep down what I really wished I could do was write, was write lyrics. And I couldn't because I wasn't good at it. And there's something playing drums badly or playing piano badly. It doesn't feel as much a comment about you as a person as writing lyrics badly. And beyond that, by the time, you know, like I started playing music young, when I, when I really finally was like, you know, just because I'm not a singer doesn't mean I can't write lyrics and write songs. I was a little older. When you're a kid and you're learning to play an instrument, you can fool yourself into thinking you're good when you're not. When you get older and when you're like, you know, even a teenager and you're trying to write lyrics and they're bad, you know they're bad. Again, as somebody who like grew up listening to punk, not being able to play an instrument is in no way a barrier to playing music. Yeah, exactly. So like the punks were all like learn three chords and start a band. And even better than that is... um. Genesis Porridge from Throbbing Gristle said, how about don't learn three chords and start a band? And I always thought that was a great comment, a great quote. But um, yeah, you know, and, and agreed. So when I first started trying to write lyrics, they were terrible. And I would stop. I would try to do it. They weren't good. I knew they weren't good. But I couldn't put my finger on why they weren't good. And And that took many years of, you know, listening to great... MCs and like AC alone and listening to Leonard Cohen and guys that were really smart lyricists and figuring out why I thought their lyrics were smart and worth picking apart. And that's what I love lyrics that were worth picking apart and going, Oh, look at that, you know, metaphor. Look at that double entendre. So what heroin did for me was it got me to a point where I was like, I don't care. I'm going to write weird indie pop songs. I'm going to write lyrics and they're bad, but I'm not going to beat myself up about it. I'm just going to keep doing it until I get good at it. And that's the one thing that the one upside to my heroin addiction was it got me through that period because I just kept writing lyrics. It didn't make me creative, didn't make me a better lyricist, but it allowed me to keep writing lyrics even when they weren't good. You know, and that's... And that applies sort of to what they say was so worked for Charlie Parker about heroin is it gave him the ability to let go of the notes he didn't like as much as as the notes he did like. You know, like if you played a note, or, you know, if you played a lick or a line that wasn't his favorite, he, w- he wouldn't dwell on it because he didn't care because he was high. And that's what it did for me. And that, that's the one positive in a world of negatives are you able to go back and look at those earlier lyrics and and now put your finger on why they didn't work yeah yes i think so for the most part it was it started out with i didn't understand basic things like it's all about repetition you listen to leonard cohen he's a master of repetition everybody knows you know it's a it's um anaphora right is what they call it in poetry or even just like a hook or a riff yeah he does but he 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 does in particular he loves to use anaphora where like every line starts with the same words but then he he also does it in a in a more you know kurt vonnegut sort of way where it'll be something like that he'll keep coming back to like hallelujah you know so it goes yeah exactly and so it goes you know and so his little peep 
So in the early days, like I didn't grasp the importance of repetition and I didn't understand that rhythm is way more important than rhyme. It was, it was like realizing time of the season. It's like, it barely rhymes, but it's, the rhythm is so strong, it doesn't matter. I mean, in a sense, it sounds like you were kind of trying to work against your training and that every instrument you mentioned is a percussion instrument. I mean, even the piano is, right? So yeah. in a sense, they're all rhythmic instruments. So when you decided to use this other part of your brain, you were almost working against the impulse to make rhythm the foundation. Yeah, that's funny. I never thought about it like that. But you're right. I think it was because I hadn't realized, because I didn't read a lot of poetry. I wasn't a big reader, period, when I was younger. I read a lot now. And it didn't come about because I thought, oh, I should read more if I'm going to write songs. I just started to enjoy it. I didn't when I was younger. And now I love reading. And I wouldn't say that I absolutely love all poetry, but there are poets like Frank O'Hara, Lunch Poems, and Ferlinghetti, Coney Island of the Mind. There are some poems poets i really love um martin steingesser he's lesser known but he's great also um because i didn't read poetry and didn't read enough period i didn't understand that rhythm is everything in language and so i wasn't even tuning into it you know and which is weird because i was so into hip-hop and it was and it's it's so all about the rhythm you know of the lyrics and the cadence I slowly kind of realized that. And then my lyrics still weren't good, but it, it was because I was trying too hard to be clever. I was too clever. And even some of the early, some of the early, even the first Big Yes record, there's like lyrics where I'm like, ugh, where it's just too cute or too clever. And I kind of roll my eyes like, you know, method done. Like when I say that at the end of Faded Away, I make a pun out of methadone, like and being done with heroin and say method done. And I'm just like, it's almost a dad joke. Yeah, it is kind of a dad joke. <laughs> it is kind of a dad joke. So then a lot of the early stuff was me trying too hard to be clever and not being personal enough. It wasn't about me. It was like me trying to do double entendres and me trying to, hey, look, I can just speak a little quieter. Me not wanting, you know, not talking about myself enough or or things that actually matter, just trying to do plays on words and that's that was the problem. Where does the addiction kind of line up in, as far as the history of the band, or at least as far as the history of kind of you really making your own music in earnest? Well, it was the first record came when I got so I got to New York. It was the first time I was not on heroin, not on methadone for you know years, and probably since you know. Or not on opiates, period, and not on methadone. You're like, I just quit heroin, so I'm going to move to New York. What a good, welcoming place. You know what? It is a great place to move for something like that, though, because it's exciting. My chief concern would be, like, I'm moving to this city where I would assume that it would be pretty easy to score, right? That it would be easy to get back into that. I got sober when I was on going to grad school, right? Like, literally, it was... A few days, I was coming down off methadone slowly over the course of like a year. And from like 100 milligrams down to like 5 milligrams, 4 milligrams, almost nothing. But it's opiates are one of those things where it's like going from 100 milligrams, 5 milligrams was the easy part. Going from 2 milligrams to zero, going from something to nothing is the hard part. But worse than that, I got mugged. Right before I went to England, and, like, I don't know if you can see, uh, there's a scar right here. I got 
hit, I don't know, brass knuckles or a pipe or something. I got blindsided in Jackson, Michigan, which is a rough town where my parents lived for a while. It's, it's like Flint, but you know, uh, it's like Flint, but Michael Moore didn't make a sweet documentary about it. Like the plant closed and it went, really went downhill. It's Flint without the fame. It's Flint without the fame. And so I got mugged there right before I went to England and I knew something was wrong. I knew because I couldn't move my jaw from side to side. It was, it was hitting something, but I didn't have health insurance at the time because this is like just at the time where I was kind of getting my stuff together. I got into grad school, University of Bristol, Bristol, England. It was exciting. And I was getting my stuff together, but I got mugged and I knew, and I still didn't have health insurance, but I knew when I got to England, I'd have health insurance because of the NHS. So I landed in England and I basically threw all my stuff at the youth hostel. And like, I could have, they could have just robbed me, but I threw all my stuff on, on a bed at the youth hostel and I, and I walked to the, the hospital right there. I remember Bristol's where the guy who does Wallace and Gromit's from, and he dedicated all this Wallace and Gromit stuff to the, to the children's hospital there. And so I remember there's like a Wallace and Gromit are everywhere at the hospital there, but I walked in and I was like, I haven't been able to eat for a few days because I can't move my jaw side to side. I could barely eat. And I was in pain and I was like, something's wrong. And they x-rayed it and they're like, your cheekbone's broken and it's like lodged against your jaw. You were still on methadone at the point? I, I had I had ended like two days before that. So, so any hope of like painkiller. Right. And and my pain was amplified because yeah. I don't care how slow you come off methadone. Methadone withdrawal, by the way, it takes a month because it's not water soluble. The reason you only have to take methadone once a day Whereas heroin, you kind of got to do it at least three times a day or you'll start to at least at least start to go through withdrawal, like mild withdrawal, is that it's, it takes your liver a long time to process it because it's like not water soluble. And that's why it does what it does. But it also means that like if you go cold turkey on methadone, you're like puking sick for like a month. And whereas heroin's like more like a week. But even coming off slow, it was like I wasn't puking or anything. But it was like my pupils were giant. I couldn't sleep. The pain was amplified. Then I go into the hospital and they got to do surgery. And there's no way to do like even moderate, you know, reconstruction surgery without opiates. So it was like they do this surgery. I remember the guy like pushed the plunger and he's like count backwards from 10. And I almost got all the way to one. And he literally had to push it more. And it's because my tolerance was so high because I was like had been on methadone, was going through it. I didn't tell anyone that because, you know, I was like ashamed and. And so I, I remember the anesthesiologist had me counting backwards. He's like standing there and he's almost kind of packing up. I get down to like two and he pushes the plunger again and then I went out. But then I woke up and was basically addicted to opiates again. And so they gave me a little bit of tramadol and that ran out and it was like immediately I'm like, okay, Bristol, England, it's a pretty big city. I'm sure there's junk here somewhere because I tried to tough it out. And I didn't sleep for like three days. I'm like starting a new program in grad school. Everyone's computer literate except me. I'd never recorded on anything but like, you know, eight tracks and like tape. And like everyone's like fluent at like Pro Tools and Digital Performer. And I like wasn't and didn't know it would be expected I would be. So I was panicking about that, feeling like I was going to fail. I couldn't take the stress. And I was like, I'm going to use. I'm just going to have to go through methadone again. I know they got it in England. So... I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to go score in a foreign country, in a foreign city. And, you know, it took me all of about three hours to find it. It's like you can you can always find it. So it doesn't matter if you move to a place like New York or wherever because it's like the bottom line is 
it's never i don't care where you are in the u.s it's never more than a few hour drive away and like it's somewhere and you'll find it if you're a junkie when you first made the decision that you needed to come off the stuff initially i mean was was it that thing of, of hitting bottom or yes it was rock bottom my parents they caught me they were in financial ruin they were already selling did they know that you were a junkie no they got a strange phone call at one point when i checked myself in the the point at which i was like okay this is out of my control i checked myself into like a a detox place in Boulder, Colorado. And then it was basically a cold turkey joint and I couldn't take it. And so I, I checked myself back out two days later and went and scored. But uh, they sent the bill to my, they tracked me down to my parents and cause I owed them some money. Yeah, It was a sliding scale. It wasn't very much, but they sent it to my parents. So I got a phone call from my parents. I was literally on my way to score in Denver and my mom calls me. And I'm like lying to her about it. I think I actually had just scored and was like in Denver, Denver, Colorado, and was like lying to my mom about it. And, um, but I ended up moving home. The dot com bubble burst and my parents and my parents also were retiring, but like that crash like wiped them out and they had to sell like this house that they loved and moved to Jackson, Michigan, which uh, is amazing. So you've heard. And so I ostensibly moved home to help out, but I was a mess. So you quit the junk, you moved to New York city and the record, it is kind of a celebratory record. Very much. That first record is that first song is almost a ska song. Oh, I'd say it is a ska song. I mean, my girlfriend's Jamaican, so I'm careful to call something Jamaican. That's not, but I would say it's, ska or maybe rock steady yeah. it's almost slow enough to be rock steady but oh i totally think it is and that was i was very much at that point there's this band i'm a robot right okay mm -hmm. so yeah yeah okay you know yeah. i'm a robot i was gonna say edward sharp and the magnetic zeros yeah. right it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. his band we one of the guys in fat mama knew those guys from younger and so we crossed paths here and there on tour in the first demo they gave us of I'm a Robot, we didn't dig it. The second demo they gave us was so good, we couldn't believe it, and we were fighting over who actually owned it. Because <laughs> that was back when CDs were like a CD. Yeah. And we would listen to it. Yeah. Me, Joe Russo, John Gray, and Brett Joseph and I in particular were obsessed with this. And, and I remember being struck by, like they might be giants in a way. Yeah. Every track was a totally different genre. And, and I was moved by that. And I thought that that was awesome. And that first record was a little like that. I was very, I was more conscious of it then. Now it just happens. But then I was like, I wrote that this like ska tune. Cause I was listening to a lot of ska and I just wrote the line. I'm always manic when I'm around you. And then I, and then I had the line yesterday. I robbed a bank and I blew it all on flowers. And I had just the music and those lines for years before I got to New York and was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to really finish this. And I was amped because I wrote like when I, before heroin became a problem, I wrote like that music. So I was listening to a lot of ska and I'd met this girl that I was super excited about. And I, but I was all, all over the road because I was like a drug addict and she didn't know that. But, and I, and I actually said that to her, I was like, I'm always man when I'm around you. And I was like, man, that, that could be a great song. And I basically sat on that for years. And then when I got to New York, the, and it was like honeymoon period, 
I started listening to that and I was like, oh my God, this Scott, this, cause I had like an instrumental demo I made of it. And I was like, oh my God, this Scott music is, I love it. And, and I, and when I made the first record, it was total honeymoon period. And I really, I was very much subscribed to this idea that there's certain genres that are just better for telling certain stories. And I, and I really felt like if you're going to write a, like a love song that's sort of, um, about, you know, how we're all a little crazy, you know, love makes a lot of us crazy. I think love makes everyone crazy personally, but, um, I don't want to speak on anyone else's path. And I felt, I just felt like, you know, Scott's just the right genre to tell that story, I feel like. And so I wrote it as a Scott song and that was the first complete song with lyrics I ever wrote. And, uh, and I remember demoing it out and being like, oh my God. I actually like this song and I wrote it. I wrote the lyrics. I wrote the whole song, you know, cause like I said, I'd been trying to write lyrics and struggling yeah. with it. And I guess the irony is like, I got through the rough period of struggling to write lyrics on heroin, but I didn't really write the gold until I got off it. Again, you write this like this manic, excited, like happy music after you've gone through a lot of shit for a really long time. The, the new record, which, you know, has some of that element to it, but definitely has some sort of like, you know, darker, slower songs on it is seems like it's coming off of a time of pretty general stability in your life. I suspect you're pretty happy with things at this point. Yeah, it's it also comes down to, uh, well, what's it, like I said, the first album was like total honeymoon. You yeah. can hear it all over that album. Even the dark songs are playful and fun, you know? They're either about, like, twisted sex or, like, you know, kind of politically dissing on... Well, saying, hey, I think Jesus Christ was an awesome guy, but I think Christians make him look bad. You know, um, even the dark stuff was kind of, like, playful and fun. Second album, still... The EP still had a bit of that, but it starts to get a little darker, the song, like, Original Sin. And then the new album was was very much, like okay, life can't be a honeymoon the whole time. You got to figure out how to make it work. You got to figure out how to deal with getting old, you know, and that and that was a, a big part of it, like mortality. Because I felt like, man, I, I, I did everything I was supposed to do. Like I chased my dreams. I took chances. You know, I loved like I'd never been hurt before. I did everything you're supposed to do. And somehow I still got old, you know, like and when you're younger, you almost like to hear people tell it, they, it almost sounds like if you live your life right, you don't get old, but it's not yeah. true. You still do. And so the new album was sort of me having to come to terms with, yeah, sometimes, you know, life isn't all a honeymoon. It's not a bed of roses. It's a drag sometimes. Uh, but you need to learn to appreciate everything about it. Even, you know, you need to really learn to appreciate that it's sort of a a differential it's like a differential equation and it's like there needs to be the low stuff to have the high stuff and and vice versa there you go that was an extremely frank conversation with kevin kendrick of a big yes and a small no i was a big fan of the first record came out way back when 10 years ago now 2008 and i was uh, pitched 
on their new record for an interview, and I sent their rep an email the night before asking whether or not he could send a press release because I couldn't find any information about the band online. And he sent me a one-page that involved these stories about kidnappings and, and heroin addiction, and I just responded, yeah, I guess uh, we, we won't have any shortage of things to talk about. A really fascinating conversation. Their new record, Mizabim, is out as of this week. Highly recommend you check that out. Thanks to everybody, as always, for listening to the show. If you like the program, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Like us on Facebook. If you've got any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL related information. And that's about it for this week. So stick around because we'll be back in uh, just a matter of days with another episode of RIYL. 